Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I got a great episode today. I'm talking with Mike Headley, who's the executive director of the South Dakota Science and Technology Authority, and he basically is the man behind the Sanford Lab in Leeds, South Dakota. This episode's going to have lots of stuff, very efficient, because I'm going to cover a wide range of topics. Uh, let's just get right into this. Mike, thanks for being on the program today. Um, so I got to tell you, I'm really excited about this because like this is, I've always wanted to do a show on a gold mine and I've always wanted to do one on a particle accelerator. And if we tell the story correctly, we're going to be able to do both today. We can encapsulate post-Civil War history, um, through the 20th century because this kind of, this spans three centuries in several eras and... And I think the homestake, uh, the homestake mine through the Sanford Lab is is a great embodiment of that. Of that. Um, so now, when we talk about, let's start with the homestake mine. So, how was this discovered? So the the homestake mine was discovered back in the um, uh, late 1800s, in um, around 1876, and um, the uh, it was discovered by the Manuel brothers, who were um, they found basically the the beginning of the of the mine uh, in on the surface and uh, and and then it went from there. I mean, basically it was uh, towards the north end of, of of where the the property started, and so that started out basically um, finding gold on the surface, and then it developed over a 125 year history. Now, when you say found gold on the surface, do you mean like they just like literally sticking out of the ground, or were they were they digging um, in the area? Well, I, I, I'm not. I really don't know. Um, but but we do know the location was hmm. roughly. We have a there's a large um, uh, open pit mining area called the Open Cut, and uh, and um, everything that I've heard about is that basically it was. It was not very far subsurface or right around the surface oh, wow. is where it was originally discovered, and um, you know as you as you know that this this area was a pretty hot area for for mining um, back in the day, and and some of the um, reasons why people came here, right, the gold rush um, mm-hmm. into this area, and that's really how Deadwood and Lead and this area really developed. Well, it's kind of, I mean, because another little piece of history here is the Manuel brothers found it. I, I didn't know they found it on the surface, uh, which is pretty incredible. But they, they, so they find this, and then a couple of the people walk into history, um, a very, very familiar name, which is George Hurst. So how did he get involved with this? Um, he, I, he, I believe, ended up, he bought the, the claim from the Manuel brothers, and so I'm not really well super you know versed on on the you know the history of of how that happened, but um, that was how the Hearst got involved was purchasing it. 
Well, here, so here's what's kind of interesting is that so just just to to let listeners know, George Hurst was the father of William Randolph Hurst, and this is kind of an interesting story because he bought it with Lloyd Tevis uh, and James Ollie Hagen, and what's I, don't, I think it's Hagen or Hagen. And what's kind of interesting about this is this is really at a time when you have industrialists coming in. And they turned this into, um, well, George Hurst at the helm turned this into one of the largest mining operations in the United States. And also, uh, he kind of made a name for himself as the mine guy, uh, which, which I thought was pretty incredible. And that's kind of how he made his fortune. Uh, and you may be able to speak to this because he kind of, so he bought this stake from, uh, from the Manuel brothers and then kind of by hook or by crook bought up all of the, the local stakes around it to kind of establish the home stake mine. And another quick side note about these guys, which is kind of cool is each one went on to do something pretty cool. I mean, like George Hurst obviously, um, controlled the whole thing, but, um, Lloyd Tevis went on to run Wells Fargo and James Hagen ran the largest horse breeding operation in the United States. So my point is these were no slouches. And these guys were right in the middle of your town creating the largest mine in the entire United States, possibly the world at the time. Um, now, can you tell me a little bit about how how efficient was the Homestake mine? The, uh, uh, you know, honestly, I really can't. Um, but, I, I, I mean, what I do know is that over its 125-year history, um, they mined over, you know, 40 million ounces of gold. Um, there yes. were s- several million ounces of silver as well. And so, a- as you mentioned, I mean, it was uh, the deepest um, gold mine in the Western Hemisphere. And so really a well-known facility in, in the mining community. And, and uh, you know, really it was quite well-known. And, uh, and so... You know, I think if you measure efficiency by the amount of gold that's extracted, you know, 40 million, over 40 million ounces is, is pretty incredible. That is it's insane. I mean, that's a lot of gold that got pulled out. And well, as well as silver, a lot of people don't know about the silver, but quite a bit of silver was, was pulled out of the mine. Um, that, I mean, 40 million ounces is quite a bit. I think, um, I think some back-of-the-envelope math is it's a couple, like, I think it's 4 or $5 billion worth of worth of gold over the span of 123 years that's a long time to be in operation sir um how does a mine stay in business that long well you know as long as the economics are working and and homestake made money you know over over that history um interestingly enough took a break during world war ii to help with uh the production of of uh, materials to support the war, and primarily hand grenades, if you can believe it. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> but really, that, you know, the, the closure of the mine was really driven by the economics. I mean, as it got into the 1990s and approaching, um, you know, 2000, they just weren't able to make the, the financing work. I mean, the price of gold was down, and the cost for extracting it, um, they weren't able to make money at it. And that's really um, when Barrett Gold Corporation purchased the, um, purchased the site and uh, the decision was made um, to, to close it down. And that really, uh, you know, was part of the history of the transition of, you know, this wonderful rich history of mining to um, what is now one of the, the world's premier underground science labs. Well, it's funny because they closed in 2002, and if they'd waited a couple years, gold would have been at an all-time high. 
um, and definitely would have it would have been cost efficient to start pulling gold back out of the mine. Um, at least in my opinion, I don't know. I don't know if the the mine has been kind of tapped out gold wise, but uh, all time highs are a good way to make money, you know. Yeah, and I've heard. Yeah, I interact with people who work for Homestake and so forth, and um, the uh, the estimates of how much is still here um, vary widely in what I hear. But uh, it, yeah, it would be interesting to know if um, if you would be able to to really make a go at it. I mean, the infrastructure uh, was is you know it has been around for a long time, and so. If you did want to return to mining, there'd be a significant investment that would be required in getting the infrastructure back to where it would need need to be to actually, you know, do extraction and processing. Sure, it's just an interesting. Con- I mean, it's just one of those things where, like, had they waited a couple more years, you know, two thousand eight was was the year. Um, but but I want to go back to eighteen seventy eight really quickly because a couple of cool things happened there. That was the first year that the mine started, and they bought an eighty stamp mill. An eighty stamp mill, as you know, is quite a large. Uh, or smashing device, which is basically, you know, 80 big hammers smashing down on the ore. And it was listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1879 and is one of the longest listed stocks in history, which is pretty incredible. I mean, that's a long list. And I imagine it was taken off um, when it was either sold to Barrick or bought by Barrick would be my guess. But what actually what is kind of cool is in your... um, in your visitor center, you can actually buy an old Homestake Mine stock certificate, which I got to tell you is one of the coolest little gifts that you can possibly um, find. I really like that. Yeah, it is. For, it's incredible. Just the 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 rich history of this place is just really amazing. And and the, as you point out, the visitor center, um, you're able to buy stock certificates, and and um, it's it's interesting to work in a place that's doing such uh, you know high tech and and world leading research now but has the backing of the just the incredible history of this location well i mean it's like i said it, it's 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 american history encapsulated um because i mean this mine I, I can't you know i can't stress enough 370 miles of mine underneath the ground uh you know you guys i mean this thing was was dug all the way down to i think 8000 feet I mean, there are, you know, a thousand shafts that are over, uh, you know, in 1906, there was a thousand, the thousand feet was as far as you went. But I think now there's some that are 8,000 feet. And this really built the town. I mean, this is why the town's on the map at, you know, at the time, people got to remember, you know, this, we're talking about an area of, of the country that there was nothing there, you know, and, and, you know, George Hurst built the town. He had water rights. He built the only railroad going in and out of town. He kind of owned the town which is just really cool. I, I want to emphasize this because um, when people look at William Randolph Hearst, his son, who ran the newspapers, I mean, he had control of 80% of the newspapers in the country, which is just, you know, it's just kind of cool to look at the mindset of the dad who had that same idea in the town. And so they they, they dug out th- hundreds of miles of tunnels underneath the ground, which, you know, and as you said, in World War II, so this is going on for, for 40 years. And then in World War II, it's always interesting to look at history at World War II, American history, I should say. Because as you said, things change and they went into the grenade business. Now, is this because it required so many types of explosives to blow up parts of the mine? Is that why they were kind of experts in all that? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I believe it was re- more related to really the the foundry and and the uh, you know the metal working related um, technology that Homestake had and the people that they that knew how to use it so well is that having them make uh, materials like grenades really you know fit well with the the overall um, I'll say shop infrastructure that that existed here at the site hmm. and was operational. That makes sense. Um, so so that's World War II. Now, and if what I'm, the picture I'm trying to paint right now is one of the Western frontier. You know, gold mining was was a key element of the Western frontier. Cowboys, um, and you know, I, I hate to say this, but cowboys and Indians, but you know, they were all kicked off their land, which is how this gold mine got started in the first place. But uh, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the Western frontier, and then which is this is this is the really cool part of of this story, and, and I'd want to put a, a point on this because in there's, now we're going to get into kind of the transition. So, so we walk out of World War II. We come back in. This is the 50s. And as we get into the 60s, the, the, America's going through a big change. And that is we're looking at the space race. And in 1968, I believe, you know, we landed on the moon in 1969. But we were going, you know, we had been working on that for the, almost the entire decade of the 60s. Something cool happens to the mine as well, as in 1968, we have the Homestake experiment, which this is so cool because it ties into the landing on the moon. I'm going to make my point right after you tell me all about the Homestake experiment. So you're, you're probably referring to the work Dr. Ray Davis did? I am. You are perfect. Um, so Ray Davis was a, was a chemist, and uh, he... Uh, wanted to study neutrinos. And so uh, he chose the, the Homestake mine and to, uh, to locate his uh, neutrino experiment. And the type of work that, that Dr. Davis wanted to do had to be done in, in what we call a very low background environment. And so the uh, cosmic radiation or cosmic rays from the sun um, would have prevented him from being able to do the science he wanted to do on the surface. So he needed to find a very deep location, uh, and and Homestake was was a you know great location for it. And so he worked with Homestake to excavate a hall uh, that we call the Davis Cavern, and we still operate it today. And he located this experiment down on the 4,850 foot level, so nearly a mile underground. Uh, Dr. Davis um, built this experiment and uh, was really one of the leaders in doing underground science and one of the first to study, uh, try and study neutrinos from the sun um, in a, using a detector that was nearly a mile underground. Wow. And this is such a great... So, so this is the Homestake experiment is what it's typically called. And I love that name because it sounds so almost like 1960s ominous, like the Dharma Initiative from Lost. You know, it's like this, it's this whole thing that's, that's going on there, which is really cool. And it, it coincides with this very important moment in American history, which I teased earlier, which is landing on the moon. And at that point in pop culture, people stopped watching Westerns and started watching science fiction. And so people stopped, little kids stopped wanting to be cowboys and they started wanting to be astronauts. And this is such – because this experiment happened in the late 60s. Like it's almost an embodiment of that pop culture shift, which is so cool because from that point forward, it still operates as a mine. There's still those Wild West uh, roots, but this kind of plants a seed for the future progress that is about to take place at the Homestake mine. And and this mine – you know, 
Ray Davis, who did this work there, ended up getting a Nobel Prize for his work, correct? Like in 2000, like recently, I believe. Uh, 2002. Yeah, 2002. He was awarded a share of a Nobel Prize. For this neutrino work, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so um, really kind of an an interesting history in that when Ray did his work um, and, and, you know, he was trying to count the number of neutrinos, he basically found about a third of what he was expecting. And this turned into this really big deal in physics. It was called the solar neutrino problem. And um, and so a what number a simple of, name. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> solar neutrino problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, the problem was really he saw a third of what he what theorists you know suggest he should have seen, and so it led to the development of additional experiments around the world. One in Japan, and another uh, located up in Canada, that um, over a number of years confirmed that. You know what he was, what he believed should have been happening, um, really was was true. That he should have, well, it, that there really were three times the number of neutrinos than what Ray was seeing, and the reason for that is his uh, his detector was really tuned to only look for one of the three, and so the the these other experiments came along and found the other two thirds of the neutrinos and um, improved what Ray's, you know, his theories on, on what he should have seen and so forth were, were correct. And so it was really, it's, it's really one of the, uh, I'll say, the famous problems in, in particle physics that was, you know, really took a number of experiments over a number of years to really try and come to the answer. And that's what has led us to the understanding that there's at least three different types of neutrinos, and it all goes back to the work that Ray did here at Homestake starting back in the 60s. Well, it is, so uh, I want to ask what's so important about neutrinos, but I, I do want to say that I looked into trying to figure out particle physics, try to give myself you know quick little refresher course, and it is, I got to tell you, it is amazing how ridiculously complex like the the subatomic particle world is because there's you know w- when you look at the history of particle physics and I'll do this really quickly and I'm going to talk at a at a third grade level you know you look at atoms and everyone thought atoms were the were the the the, the smallest thing we could get to and then we started smashing them into pieces and found out that there's a lot of little jigsaw puzzle pieces that actually make up all the matter in the world and neutrinos are one of those puzzle pieces and then there's two other puzzle pieces that look really similar um, and so that's basically what happened is, is what you're saying is that we, we found out that there were th- two other puzzle pieces that we were looking for that we thought was all just one puzzle piece. And I got to tell you, Mike, it would have been a lot easier. I imagine for all the work of the scientists, if neutrinos were just neutrinos instead of three different types of neutrinos, I got to, yeah, being a scientist, I hope you can agree with that. Right, right. They're, um, they're really a, a very unique particle in that it's really the only one that we know of that exists in these different states or these different mm. what we call flavors. And for simplicity, we, we equate them to ice cream. Great. So like chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. Sure. And, um, the Neapolitan and so neutrino. That, right. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, you know, neutrinos are really pretty amazing. I mean, they were, you know, first theorized back in the 1930s and, and uh, you know, really first detected in the 50s. And there's really so much about neutrinos that we don't know. I mean, they're really light. I mean, basically, you know, on the order of a million times lighter than the electron. So 
Uh, and as we, we grew up and, and took science, everyone was told, oh, the, the electron is, is so light. It's this very, very light particle. You know, to think of something that is a, could be roughly a million times lighter than that is really, it's really pretty amazing and kind of hard to get your head around. And, um, and so we really don't know the mass of the neutrino at this point, and it's something that we're trying to do. And, um, and, and as neutrinos fly through space, they change from one type to another. So I talk about the three different types of neutrinos. They change state. They change from one flavor of ice cream to the other. And the physics behind how that happens is something that we're, we're trying to study with the experiments that we have here today and some that are um, coming up um, here in the future. Wow. And so how, if they're so small, I mean, how are these things detected? What was Ray doing to be able to detect these things? So he, uh, he had a detector that was basically 100,000 gallons of dry cleaning fluid. Okay. <laughs> and so he was, try he was trying to um, uh, count the, the interactions of, the, of this perchloroethylene, this dry cleaning fluid, as the neutrinos would bump into it. And so he was, you know, basically counting... Um, um, atoms of argon that had formed, and uh, so the neutrino and, hits the chlorine molecule that turns into argon, which is a noble yeah. gas, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, you know, just trying to count um, the number of of, uh, of those interactions, and and uh, and and basically, that process was um, was sensitive to the electron neutrino, which is basically the neutrinos that we see coming from the sun. Hmm. Okay. And, and the, from, so they're created in the nuclear fusion that happens, and they're kind of expelled. And as these things travel through space, so, so to get, come back to the mine, so we needed someplace underground so that the, the detector wasn't um, basically, the, the material wasn't destroyed by the, the interference from the cosmic interference, correct? Right, right. And so these by... things blast through the, through, the, through the earth unimpeded. They they basically go through anything. Um, they're they're not um, like, like you said. They're, the 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 ground doesn't doesn't cause any um, uh, any sort of barrier. It doesn't represent a barrier for the neutrino. Mm -hmm. They don't care. And they by go going through anything, they go through. They do what they want. These neutrinos. Basically, basically. Mm -hmm. and so um, by going a mile underground, we're able to lower that background of cosmic radiation. Um, by about a factor of 10 million. So if you, I always like to tell people, if you put your hand out on the surface, you'll have roughly three cosmic rays going through your hand every second. If you go down to our laboratory nearly a mile underground, you'd have to have your hand out for roughly a month before you'd have one go through your hand. <laughs> All right. So, so it doesn't block everything, but it provides a background where, uh, or, or an environment where if you have a little bit of additional shielding, you can get to a place where the physics can be performed. Sure. It's like extra strength sunblock in a way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, and so, just so, just so I'm clear, so this original experiment was done at 4,850 feet, which, like, as you said, is close to a mile. Now, this is kind of like a historic landmark in a way. Don't you guys still use that floor, and it's and it's labeled? Uh, we do the the lab space that Ray um, used. We use it today, and so we've had, although a little bit different type of an experiment. Um, we've had, uh, up until recently, what is one of the most sensitive dark matter experiments in the world was located in the Davis Cavern. Uh, it's an experiment called the Large Underground Xenon Experiment, or LUX. And um, you had mentioned our visitor center a few minutes ago. If you go to the visitor center, you'll actually 
you'd be able to you know lay your eyes on the detector that Lux had a mile underground. Wow, that's and amazing. so they, yeah, so they finished their work um, about a year and a half ago, and decommissioned, and we're getting ready for the next generation of dark matter experiment called the Lux Zeppelin experiment, which will be about um, 30 times larger than the Lux experiment. So that. Um, that's the type of work that we're doing in the Davis Cavern um, today. Wow. It's just so cool that you guys are still using that, that, that whole area in the same experiment space that Ray Davis did, who started this whole thing. And, and, and just to finish up with this homesick experiment, this is very important in the history because it basically did a couple of things. It showed that it was a viable working environment, essentially, for this type of work, which allowed for future work. But I got to ask one question. Why this mine? Like, why the Homestake mine? Because it was still in operation. I mean, this was still going. This is the 60s. I mean, you know, it was 40, 50 years from closing down. Why this area? Why this particular mine? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question. I, the, the rock that's located here is incredibly hard. And so uh, we like to say the rock is very competent. And so if you're looking for a location where you can build underground caverns to support science, it's a perfect location. I would imagine that Ray made the rounds of a number of different mines and chatted with them. And, and uh, you know, luckily, the, the homestake management at the time was willing to, to work with them. And create a create a space for him. That's so. I mean, it's just crazy. So, so even the other work going around didn't like. I guess it doesn't really affect. It doesn't really, he doesn't really care about noise and miners banging around. That doesn't really affect his work, does it? <laughs> it doesn't impede um, neutrinos. Right. Exactly. And and the area that he um, that he did his work really does not have active mining nearby it. And so it's in a location near one of our shafts that people you know, equipment and materials and everything, and, and, and people came underground. But there really was not much in the way of active mining near where Ray was working. So so he, so basically this homestake experiment happens, and he shows that it's totally doable inside the homestake mine. So he does his experiment. It's an unmitigated success, uh, although that won't be really proven for, you know, 30 more years. And so he leaves, right? So there wasn't like continuous science going on, isn't that right? Didn't, didn't, so, That's so, right. Okay, so so the he leaves, yeah. and then you know it's funny because obviously you guys are operating now, but I found this old article which is which is kind of cool. This is from two thousand three, and so uh, I, I they had um, I think at one point it was called. And this is where I'm I'm probably going to mess up the history a little bit. It was hard for me to follow when I was taking notes, so I want you to. Untangle, uh, untangle this for me a little bit, but I believe so. In two thousand three, this New York Times article came out, and it was talking about how difficult it was going to be, nearly impossible for anyone to secure the mine for science at that point. Because this is this is right after Barrick bought it. This is two thousand three. So in two thousand two, they shut it down, and they kind of let the mines fill up with water, which I believe uh, is due to the to groundwater, right? Like that's just the natural um, habit of the earth. Is that right? I'm making that up, but I think that's true. Yeah, it's just the natural inflow. Um, okay. We get, and, and this will sound like a lot, but we get about six to seven hundred gallons per minute that flow into the mm. underground. It does sound like and that a sounds lot. like a, it sounds like <laughs> a lot of water, but it's over uh, an expanse, as you mentioned a, a bit ago, three hundred and seventy miles of tunnels and ramps that mm-hmm. exist in the underground facility. So, um, 
it, it so we so the water does flow in, and so um, as things closed, um, uh, you know, Barrick did make the decision to turn off the pumps, and and the underground did start to fill with water. And actually, I, we mentioned the 4850 is the lab space that we're operating today, and um, the water actually got to 300 feet above where we're operating. So <laughs> roughly, yeah. So that was one of the first things we had to do was get that water out so that we could get we could get back down to the 4850. And that was really about the time I started is um, working here at the facility is when we started to do that work. Wow. So the mine was so that tunnel was flooded then where you guys are right now. I mean, it was. Yeah. That's that's crazy to think about. Well, so so this New York Times article, it's just funny when you look back at history, they said it wouldn't be nearly impossible for anyone to secure the space. And, you know, here you are operating cutting edge science there. Uh, so pumping out water is obviously very expensive. And so um, and you're going, you know, miles down. You've got lots of tunnels to. to uh, well, I mean, you shouldn't have to pump all the water out of all the tunnels. So you, I'm sure you guys are very selective with what you do it with. Um, but in, so in 2006, now, this is where we start getting into the good stuff here. In 2006, the mine was donated. And I, I, so this is what's funny to me because they bought, Barrick bought it in 2002 and then cl- or in, like right around 2001 or 2002 and then sold it like a year later. Why did they buy it? Uh, I, I think it was – it wasn't just this property. There were a number of homestake properties oh, that, they, oh, that they purchased. And so this really kind of came along with the, the overall portfolio of mining properties that they were purchasing. Got it. Okay, so now this is where I need you to kind of help me with the history. So they were they were pumping out the water for I believe which was Ducel at that time, the Deep Underground Science and Engineering Laboratory. They had there was there was a, a facility had been built, and then they were kind of pumping them. So this is post Homestake experiment. So this is after the neutrino experiment. But there was another science facility down there that they were had an agreement with the mine, and they were pumping it out. But then this was going how was this transition this is the kind of the area where i'm a little confused as to what was going on and then how that transfers into the sanford lab that you guys are currently operating so there was a a committee called the bacall committee um and and in essence it was a group of scientists who were studying the, the potential for an underground location and they said we we need one right and and so homestake was one of the leading candidates and uh, and this was around the 2001 time frame. And as you mentioned, the, the pumps were turned off a couple of years later uh, because I believe just because they were struggling, the overall community was struggling to get the funding to be able to move forward and uh, and be able to create a facility. And so 2003, the pumps were turned off and basically the, fa- the facility was shut down. And uh, And then the state stepped forward. And the South Dakota legislature in 2004 um, created the South Dakota Science and Technology Authority, which is the organization that I run. And then in 2004 and 2005, they provided initial funding to be able to take on the ownership of the site. And so, as you can imagine, uh, as Barrick purchased the facility there, they wanted a level of protection from legally, um, from environmental issues, and also just the liability. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You are going underground so, into old tunnels from the 1870s. Exactly, exactly. And so the legislature and um, the the governor, uh, uh, governors, I should say, um, um, Governor Janklow was one of the an initial people to really push to get the facility um, established and then was followed by um, uh, then Governor Mike Rounds, who's now Senator Mike Rounds. 
and they worked uh, with the legislature to, to, as I mentioned, create the Science and Technology Authority here in the state, and then also provide the initial funding to be able to start the operation of the facility and also to deal with the liability um, requirements that uh, that came from the agreement that was eventually struck between the state and and Barrick. Right. Okay. And that's when they do, so then they donated it under basically with legal protection that you guys wouldn't sue them if anyone died in a mine crash. Basically. Um, Correct. And so then then it's operated. You guys have it. You're looking for funding. So this so if I'm, if I'm so that was. Um, so this is how the, the current facility was founded, right? So it's partly funded by the state and partly funded by T. Denny Sanford, correct, of South Dakota? It was initially. It was okay. initially. And so Homestake, uh, they, or, or Barrick, actually donated the site in 2006. And at that time, um, Governor Mike Rounds talked. He had some conversations with T. Denny Sanford and convinced uh, Mr. Sanford to to donate $70 million to really kickstart the development of the facility. And so um, followed that next year in 2007, the National Science Foundation, through a down-select process, had selected Homestake to be the facility. And in essence, if um, if there was going to be a, a deep underground science and engineering lab in the U.S., Homestake was going to be the site. And it was in that time frame that we really started to re-enter the facility and, and get systems in place to be able to remove the water. Um, you know, we talked about the water coming up 300 feet above where the lab space was located. That's really when that work to do that initial dewatering started. Wow. Okay. So uh, I do have to mention this. T. Denny Sanford was CEO for the National United Corporation, which I got to tell you is the most generic name I've ever heard in my entire life. Very suspicious, uh, T. Denny. I don't know what you're up to. Actually, I do know what you're up to. You're a credit card company. So, um, so you guys pumped the water out, and this thing was was basically you guys had to put in an infrastructure. Now, in the current mining infrastructure, you had to repurpose it for a science lab. And this is one of the really right. cool parts of this story because obviously mining had been such a rich part of this of the town's history for so long. There were lots of miners that were out of work. You know, it's still a small town. We're talking, you know, how many people were in lead at the time in like the, the 2000s? It's, it's about 3,000 now. I'm sure it was, you know, pretty close to that number back okay. then. So a pretty small community. I'm from a town of 5,000, so I know how small those communities can be. And so when you have like a major industry, a lot of people in town are employed there. This mine goes out of business. A lot of people are out of work. But as this science facility comes in, you guys have actually reemployed former miners to kind of put in this science infrastructure. That's great. Yeah, it's um, it's been a great addition um, to the to the town, as you can imagine. You know, for 125 years, this was this was the major industry in Leeds, South Dakota, and uh, and so you know certainly uh, there's uh, you know tourism and and that as well. But you know, for, for obviously well over 100 years, this was this was the reason, you know, or what people were doing in in Leeds for work. Yeah. No, it's very true. And and now they're, you know, a lot of people are back to work again, putting this thing in there. So now we have the science lab established. And in some ways, finding neutrinos, and I'm going to go bad pun here, but it's like striking gold again for the town. Because now, you know, for a little bit, neutrinos were kind of like the the 
economic, uh, the economy of, of the science of the town. But you've got a lot of experiments going on there now. So as this thing was established, you have kind of like an underground campus. And it's not all neutrinos. So let's talk about some of the really cool things you've got going on there right now in the science lab. And you mentioned the Lux experiment. And so this is about, it's about dark matter, which no one can really explain. Um, but you said now there's a, there's a new experiment. So the, you, the, the former Lux um, detector is on display. So how is the, the new experiment going to be different? So the, the new experiment will be a similar technology. And, and basically it uses um, liquid xenon to try, or, or is the medium that uh, we are, you know, aiming to have, uh, you know, particles of dark matter bump into and create signals. And so the Lux experiment, we used uh, a third of a metric ton of liquid xenon. And, uh, and so that produced, you know, one of the world's leading results. Um, we didn't, the, the collaboration, I, I, say, I say we, it's really the science collaboration that's associated with Lux that has come here to do work. And so they're, uh, they ran for uh, two different runs of, of, of uh, the longest one being over 300 live days of data taking. And uh, they did not find dark matter, but they like to say they did it better than anyone else in the world. <laughs> and uh, That means gotta, nothing, Mike. We both know that. It means nothing. But right, I like the effort. Right. And so there, it's an incredibly competitive field. There are, you know, close to a couple of dozen different experiments around the world that are trying to be the first to do this. And, uh, and so Lux completed its work, and uh, the, uh, the vast majority of the people who worked on Lux are now working on the next generation, which is called the Lux Zeppelin experiment. And so the LZ experiment will be on the order of 30 times the mass. So I, I mentioned a third of a metric ton of liquid xenon, and LZ will be will, will hold roughly 10 metric tons of liquid xenon, and so by going bigger, um, it, it in essence it allows you to create a more sensitive experiment, and so they're hoping to achieve a, a, a sensitivity that's about a hundred times greater than what uh, what they were able to achieve with Lux, and so um, the, the the goal is really to be um, with Lux. Now with LZ is to be the most sensitive experiment in the world and hopefully the first one that actually is able to observe particles of dark matter. Well, you know, for, for people listening who don't know necessarily the importance of dark matter, that if, if they were able to detect it, that would be probably one of the greatest discoveries I think we could, of, of humankind up to this point would be. I don't know if I'm overstating it at all. You can you can back me down a little bit. Tell me to dial it back, but I think it's it's that important if they were to discover an actual particle of dark matter. Correct? Yeah, I mean, I always kind of like to think of it in terms of a pie chart that we that we show um, people, and and if if you look at this pie chart, imagine roughly seventy five percent of it being uh, well. Let me back up. So the, this pie chart is what makes up the universe. Okay. Okay. And yeah, it's good to tell you the, what the pie chart is telling you. <laughs> so, so if you look at this pie chart of, of what the universe is made of, um, roughly four percent of it is theorized to be what we've been able to directly detect and measure, and we we know quite a bit about. And if you look at the rest of it, roughly seventy five percent of it um, of the area of of the whole pie is dark matter. 
And so if, if, if you can imagine being the first to actually direct, directly detect dark matter and be able to understand something about it is, uh, I mean, obviously Nobel Prize winning work. This would be just incredible, um, incredible physics to be able to, to discover. Well, you know, and let's put it a different way. It'd be like, you know, going back millions of years, you're one of the first people who lives on land, and you're looking at, you think the Earth is really big. There's, there's got to be more than land what's going on here, and you're the first person to discover the oceans, you know, essentially. It's the same makeup, about 70-30, um, and, I mean, it's essentially on a much bigger cosmic scale, that kind of discovery. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing just by the numbers, I'm kind of yanking that out of the old keister as we're going along here. Uh, <laughs> one thing that kind of struck me is very strange, and I think it, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this in the interview. Isn't it a little weird that you guys are doing cutting-edge astrophysics work a mile below the surface of the Earth? It, it is, yeah. It's weird, right? It Mike? is a bit mind-blowing. <laughs> it's a little strange, yeah. but that's what has to be done. Uh, so now let's, let's keep going on with some of these experiments because the next one that you guys um, are ta- uh, that are doing the the Majorana is that am I saying that correctly the Majorana demonstrator experiment, um, which is basically looking at matter and antimatter, which just sounds awesome. Uh, tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so it's it's actually called the Majorana demonstrator. Yeah, I, I'm really and... bad at names. So wait, what is it again? It's the Marana. Majorana. 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 Got it. Yeah. Okay. And it's named after an Italian physicist who developed a number of the the theories that are associated with the work that this experiment's trying to um, trying to prove or disprove. And but so it's antimatter and matter, right? I mean, let's talk about that. Yeah. So basically, what they're what they're trying to do is through studying um, the behavior of neutrinos, they're they're trying to understand why there's more matter than antimatter in the universe. And so if you go back to the Big Bang, the, the theories of the Big Bang um, suggest that there should have been an equal amount of matter and antimatter that were generated at the Big Bang, and they would have basically canceled each other out. And, but we know that's not true. If we look around, I mean, we're here, everything <laughs> around us is here. Right. We, we live in a matter-dominated universe, and we don't fully understand why that is. And so the Myrana Demonstrator experiment is really... Um, what they're trying to do is observe a rare form of nuclear decay called neutrinoless double beta decay. And uh, in, in, in essence, what they're trying to do through doing that is trying to understand why there's more matter than antimatter in the universe and, and what is the mass of the neutrino. And so those, that, that's the, uh, the second major experiment that we have down in the Davis campus today. This one's pretty exciting because what, what I love about matter and antimatter, which I always found really interesting, is that they annihilate each other. So, like, if you have matter and antimatter and they come in contact, they basically are destroy each other and give off photons, right? Right, right. I know that's a really simple way to give that explanation, but I think it's just photons that are given off, which is kind of co- – I mean, first of all, that's really cool. I mean, visually, that's got to be pretty awesome. But, you know, on a cosmic scale, what you're saying is really important because when you start looking at the Big Bang and the idea that all these particles came forward and that there would be an even number of each, it is really interesting that they didn't annihilate each other at that time. But it also makes sense that they didn't because, as you said, we're here. So this is really interesting stuff. Does antimatter exist in, like, uh, in everyday occurrences? I mean, is it like an antimatter planet or something like that? <laughs> it, it, it does exist. Um, but... 
But I mean, not, like in, not really a, a planet. <laughs> okay, so, so so not that big. So this is just like small particles that kind of wander around. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and I imagine with all these things, you know, even with dark matter, as, as you know, I know there's a lot of it, but all these things have to be really difficult to detect because you're talking about infinitesimally small things that you're hoping kind of wander their way into your detector, essentially, right? You're like putting out a big, you know, a big net and you're hoping that what you're looking for will come through the net, right? Right. Yeah, these are very rare um, events that we're trying to um, that we're trying to observe. And so that's really why, you know, we try and scale up to larger detectors is to increase the probability of, of observing those events and why we go a mile underground to get to a, a place that's quiet enough to be able to observe these rare these rare processes. Makes sense. Um, all right, so now we're going to get to one of my favorite ones. As, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, we're talking about gold mines and particle accelerators. We're talking about the Dune experiment now, which has a particle accelerator involved, and not only just any particle accelerator, Mike. This is Fermilab. And for those of you who don't know Fermilab, I grew up around Fermilab, and at the time when I was growing up and visited it, it was the largest and best, like a world-class particle accelerator, which is basically taking, you know, small particles and whipping them around in a circle and then smashing them into each other. And this thing was kind of put out of commission by CERN, um, which while I understand, I felt really bad for Fermilab because there's not really much they can do at that point because CERN is just so much bigger and better. But you guys have repurposed CERN, like you repurposed the gold mine, and now you got this great experiment. I love it. Tell me about this. Yeah, so th this is um, this is huge um, to say the least, and and we talk about the experiments that are located at CERN, and uh, and how these experiments are have done things like um, be able to uh, uh, be the be able to generate the Higgs boson, and and the and the the excitement that was that happened with that a couple of years ago, and 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 the experiments involved with that had roughly you know a couple thousand twenty five hundred scientists on each one of them, and um, the the Dune experiment will already has over a thousand scientists that are involved. It's international by design, and uh, has hundred and I believe one hundred and seventy six different institutions that are involved right now. Roughly 60% of those are international. So this is really a worldwide effort that's being hosted here in the U.S. And it's really, we, as we like to say, it's you know, really the largest science mega project ever to be attempted on U.S. soil. And so, so what does that really mean? Yeah, what does that mean, Mike? I was just going to say, so enough of the marketing. What does this do? Okay, so what does it do? Basically, you, you mentioned the particle accelerator at Fermilab. And... Um, the, the accelerator at Fermi is already one of the most powerful beams of neutrinos in the world. So what they do is they accelerate protons in, in this accelerator ring, and um, what they're able to do is, is smash those protons into a graphite target, and what you get out the far end of that is a stream of particles. And you're able to absorb some of those and others decay, and um, what you get at the at the far end of the accelerator is one of the most powerful beams of neutrinos in the world. And so what what we're planning on doing is modifying the existing accelerator at Fermi to point to South Dakota. And so what that accelerator will do is generate this beam of neutrinos that will go through the earth. There's no tunnel, it just goes through the rock. 
and we'll have some of the largest, really the largest neutrino detectors in the world that will be located here, um, nearly a mile underground. And so there's four of them in total, and, and uh, each of these large detectors will have in total, amongst all of them, 70,000 tons of liquid argon, which I think is on the order of about 13 million gallons of liquid argon. Jeez. <laughs> and very similar to Lux, we talk about Lux and having dark matter particles bump into xenon and being able to measure those. Uh, what we're expecting in Dune is the beam of neutrinos that uh, a certain percentage of those neutrinos will interact with the argon and will be able to measure the properties of neutrinos. And so it's at this point people look at me and they go, well, why, why Illinois? Why South Dakota? Why, you know, what's so magical about the distance between um, the two locations, and, and why are, are these the locations that are involved in this experiment? And, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of the interview, we talked about neutrinos existing in different types or different flavors. And so what we're expecting between, in that time of flight between Chicago and Leeds, South Dakota, we're expecting those neutrinos to change from one type to another. So 800 miles is the magical distance, like 88 miles per hour is the magical speed for time travel. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's really why the, the distance between our location and Chicago is really, um, it's perfect for studying this type of physics. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge project, obviously, something that has to be done on, in essence, a planetary scale to be able to do this type of work. It's really, it's really an, an amazing project. Well, there's also, I mean, there's a couple of things involved here. So, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the magic and the majesty that you just painted because I, I do want to believe in all that. But also, how many particle accelerators that are kind of sitting around relatively unused are there in the world, much less the country? Um, so it, it kind of has to be Fermilab, I would think. And you guys are really only the ones doing the neutrino experiment. So it kind of has to be you guys. If anything, the magical distance between you is the part of happenstance, correct? Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. I'm just calling the spade a spade. It's still magical. I'm just saying. Um, because I think it's important to say, because the way that's told, I mean, both Fermilab and LEED have the importance there. It's not the importance of the distance, although that happens to be important. But I think really the incredible work that was d done at Fermilab and LEED are the two important pieces to, to that story. I love this one. This is great because... Um, obviously, it involves two places that I really like, but this is this could be a really, I mean, it's not Nobel Prize, I think. Can you win Nobel Prize for multiple neutrino experiments? Asked a scientist this once before. Um, she said no, but I feel like if you guys, if this works, can you get another Nobel Prize? Is that in your future, Mike? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and these are, yeah, the, these are different enough. And, uh, yeah, of course. Okay. okay. <laughs> this, this work. Okay. We're you, certainly hoping this will be Nobel Prize winning work. Of course. Um, and, if, and, and if it achieves its goals like we think it will, it certainly would be. And, and so, like, is it kind of, you know, when people win Oscars, a lot of people on the producing team are, are, you know, get Oscars as well. Will you get a Nobel Prize on your desk for this? I won't. I won't. I'm hoping oh. I get to go to Stockholm and, and participate in the, in the event. But, oh, uh, you're still going to make a no, case to even go there? <laughs> it, uh, it, it will it'll be awarded to the scientists that are part of the collaboration. I guess that makes sense. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let's move on. I don't want to, that sounds like a sore subject. I don't want to rub that in too much because I know what, the, I know that feeling. I've been on award winning teams, didn't get myself an Emmy. Um, all right. So let's move on. Some more cool stuff going on there. What about the Lawrence Berkeley national laboratory collab? 
um, which is geothermal research, which is another really important thing about the mine. I mean, this mine is kind of uniquely suited for a lot of this stuff. You know, you're digging down eight, nine miles. Obviously, you're going to get closer to the center of the earth than anyone else. There's a lot of geothermal stuff going on there. How have you harnessed it? What's going on with this experiment? Well, what they're trying to do, this really is a test site for them. They're, they're trying to develop enhanced um, you know, geothermal technologies and really for, um, for energy production. And so they're, they're testing out this, uh, the experiment you referenced. They're testing out different techniques for, um, for fracturing rock and being able to get fluids um, that would be ideal for this type of, of work to flow through rock in a predictable way and be able to do that efficiently over a long period of time. And so um, the, uh, the EGS um, co-lab that's associated with Lawrence Berkeley Lab and, and a number of labs, there's a lot of different um, universities and, and national laboratories that are involved in this, really are trying to, you know, as, as, as I said, trying to develop advanced technology for energy production. And so they have some uh, drill holes that have been recently installed down on the 4850, and they're instrumenting those and, um, and performing science, trying to figure out how to get these fluids to flow, flow through rock and do it really efficiently. And so that will, so that technology would basically be utilized at the surface, although collected underground to spin turbines and generate electricity, right? Right, exactly. Um, How to harness that, that heat that's located deep underground. Right, and, and it's, you know, it's a completely green source of energy, um, the way we should be going. Now, how efficient is this? I know you're not on the, the team doing this, but just, you know, back of the envelope type stuff, how efficient would this be? Um, you know, I really can't say. I, okay. I don't really have a background in it. I, I know oh, enough to be enough. dangerous and tell you what it's all about, but, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the level of efficiency they're able to achieve, I'm, I'm not really up on that. All right. No, that's fair. Uh, all right. So I, I think, well, there's, there's one question I want to ask at the end, but I believe there's one other science experiment going on there, and correct me if I'm wrong if there are others, but uh, CASPAR, is that the Compact Accelerator System for Performing Astrophysical Research? Um, is that going on still? It is, yeah. Um, CASPER is a low-powered accelerator, and what they're trying to do is study, study the processes that lead to the generation of basically all of the elements that are heavier than iron. And so there are um, processes that occur in stars when they come to the end of their life and um, that are, are not really well understood. And by locating this low-powered accelerator in this um, low-background environment nearly a mile underground, they're able to observe some of these sensitive processes to help understand um, really how a lot of these elements on the periodic table are generated. And so they have recently uh, completed installation, and they're actually getting ready to start collecting science data this month. Wow. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting time for, for the experiment right now. Yeah, no kidding. So, th so this month they're going to start in February. Right. Um, right. And, and what do you think will come out of that? What do you think will be the big discovery that will come out of that? Just how all well, the elements are, are created? Yeah, exactly. Which is how do deal? these processes really work? <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like foundation of the universe type stuff. Exactly, yeah. Um, so have I, have I missed any other major experiments that are going on there? No, I, I, think, uh, I think we've covered the range. Holy cow, I nailed it. All right, I've got to ask you another question. This one may be top secret, Mike. So 
I'm, even if you say no, I'm going to take it as a yes, but let's talk about it anyway. So one of the things that was kind of interesting about this concept of having these underground facilities, and there, there are a couple other ones, is that I, I was listening to this, this show about how people are able to detect nuclear explosions from around the country by having these underground kind of detectors to detect the radioactive decay from a nuclear explosion. Do you, you know, in these big underground vats of, of water, do you guys do any of that work there? Um, and if you did, would you be able to tell me about it? Well, we don't. Okay. And I, I'm yes. not sure if I could tell you or not, <laughs> but <laughs> we, but we don't. It'd probably be classified, um, I, I can I say the, um, you know, one of the questions I, I get a lot is really what's the practical application of the work that we're doing? I mean, this is very basic science. I mean, this is trying to, you know, we're, we're involved in a number of different disciplines, but from a physics perspective, we're trying to understand how the universe is put together. And sometimes there's not an, a direct, you know, foreseeable direct application that comes from that. But what I can say is that some of the technologies that these experiment groups are working with does have um, other uses. And I mentioned, or we, we talked about the Myrana demonstrator experiment, and um, the detectors that they use for the experiment are made of germanium. And similar types of detectors are used for detecting neutrinos from nuclear reactions. And so um, there is an application in nonproliferation um, of you know, monitoring of nuclear weapons and, and power plants and that kind of thing that that the technologies that we work with, you know, can be used for as well. Sure. So you can do it. You just don't wink, wink is basically what you're telling me. <laughs> right. Sure. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, well, so I imagine people will be very excited about seeing this. Are, are tours available? Can people um, make the trek up to lead and, and, and tour these things? So we, as we talked about earlier, we do have a visitor center that really is amazing. Um, and, uh, gives a great background on the history of the mining and how, how LEED has advanced over its, its history and also the science that we're doing today. And so people can certainly visit the visitor center. It's free admission. And the visitor center also has a surface tour that people can take. Um, just kind of given the limitations of our facility, we're not able to take the general public underground. I would love to, but just with where, where we're at right now, we're not able to do that. But there is a surface tour that people can take. Okay. Not as cool, but still pretty awesome because uh, everyone wants to go underground and see this stuff up close. You guys do have one really cool thing I want to mention in your lobby, which is it's hard to explain, but it's basically it's using uh, metal wires to show all of the tunnels that have been built underground. It's this 3D kind of tunnel map that sits in the middle uh, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but it's really cool to see because you really get a, a tangible 3D view of the network of mines, the 370 miles, obviously, to scale, uh, that goes on underneath there. Whose idea was it to put that in there? That's great. Um, boy, uh, we had a – I'm trying to think of who actually came up with that. We did have a group of, I'll, I'll say, stakeholders who were involved in – really the kind of the initial concepts of what the exhibitry would look like in that building. And um, the fortunate thing is we have a, a 3D, um, you know, CAD database of all of the underground workings. And so we had the data set at hand, and basically we just needed to find a fabricator that could make it. And so you, you did a great job describing it. It's really breathtaking. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty amazing. It's, <laughs> 
It, it's pretty amazing, and, and I, I think one of the, the the most interesting things that's in the visitor center. So it's well worth uh, you know making the track to check it out. Hundred percent. I mean, because usually maps they don't really do things justice. This is a whole 3D rendering where you really get to walk around it and just see how long everything is. Uh, and when when I was on the tour there, they even pointed out like there a really long stretch where people were following this gold vein, and it's you know almost twice as long as the as the mine itself. I mean, that's how deep this one particular shaft is, which I'm sure has a name uh, because it's it's it must have been pretty incredible vein to follow. Uh, all right, Mike, I got to tell you, I don't know if we've if I've given the impression of just how amazing the history of this place is, but it, it is just such a cool encapsulation, in my opinion of American history through the 20th century that, um, you know, I, I think when you really start looking at it, it, it really tells the story of America and the progress, hopefully, that is in our future. And you're the head of that. So um, excellent work, Mike. <laughs> thanks for talking to me and congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's, um, yeah, I've been doing this type of work for 25 years and it's really, it's the most amazing project I've ever worked on. We have an amazing team and, and uh, great partners and Fermi and other national laboratories, and it's really a privilege to work on this. Yeah, it, it's incredible. Can't say it enough. Um, so hopefully everyone listening can go check it out. Uh, oh, let me give you some quick promo here before we go. So how can people get in touch with you? And, and, and Are you guys on social media? Do you guys do um, – what's your website? Yeah, our, uh, our website is sanfordlab.org. And so that's pretty easy. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. I love links to all the stuff on your bio page so people can do quick links to it. Um, all right, Mike, thanks again for taking so much time out to talk about this amazing facility. You bet. My pleasure. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn all about the show, to listen to past episodes, or to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Plus, you can sign up for the newsletter. Who doesn't want more mail in their inbox, uh, more email in their inbox every single week with upcoming shows? Not only for this one, but for other shows. I do lots of things that you may find interesting. For more on that, go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out exactly what I'm up to. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.